0: 27 and verse number 27 when you find your place, I'll invite you to stand and honor and reverence the reading of the Word of God tonight. Matthew 27, 27, the Bible says, then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the common hall and gathered unto him the whole band of soldiers, and they stripped him and put on him a scarlet robe. And when they had plaited a crown of thorns, they put it upon his head and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit upon him and took uh, the reed and smote him upon the head. And after that they had mocked him, they took the robe off from him and put his own raiment on him and led him away to crucify him. And as they came out they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, him they compelled to bear his cross. And when they were come unto a place called Golgotha, that is to say a place of a skull, they gave him vinegar to drink mingled with gall, and when he had tasted thereof, he would not drink. And they crucified him and parted his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture did they cast lots. And sitting down, they watched him there, and set up over his head his accusation written, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then were there two thieves crucified with him, one on the right hand and another on the left. And they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads, and saying, Now notice these words between verse 39 and these following verses. We will spend most of our time here this evening. The Bible says, verse 39, "...and they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads, and saying, Thou that destroyest the temple, and buildest it in three days, save thyself." If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise also the chief priests mocking him with the scribes and elders said, He saved others himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. The thieves also which were crucified with him cast the same in his teeth." Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land unto the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabbathani, which is to say, that is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken forsaken me? Some of them that stood there when they heard that said, this man calleth for Elias. And straightway one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with vinegar and put it on a reed and gave him to drink. The rest said, let be, let's see, uh, let us see whether Elias will come to save him. Jesus, when he, had, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. We'll conclude our reading there this evening. Let's You may have a seat. Let's bow for a word of prayer together and we'll get into the message that the Lord would have for us tonight. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come into your presence once again as th- as humbly and thankfully, God, as we know how. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege that it is to one more time be in the house of God to be able to be with your people, God, to be able to open up the Word of God together, to be able to open up a songbook together and sing biblical songs with biblical truth that we can rejoice in concerning our God, to be able to open up the Bible and, and Lord, open up the book of truth that we so stand in need of to learn from, to glean from, to apply to our lives. To understand, Lord, what you would have for us to know. And Father, we do pray for the next few moments, God, that your will would be done uh, in this time of preaching. Lord, I pray as I often do, God, that you'd forgive me of sin, empty me of self, fill me with your spirit, use me for your glory. Help me, God, to be a blessing. Help me not to say anything, God, that you would not have to be said. Help me, God, to only say the things, Lord, that you would have to be said. God, I realize, uh, God, that I can do nothing without you. And I pray that. Uh, Dear Lord, that you would do the preaching and the work of God through me this evening, Lord. I claim to know nothing, Lord. I claim to be helpless, but God, if anything good's going to take place in this place, it's going to be you that does it. And Father, I pray, dear Lord, that you'd speak to each and every heart, that you'd minister to each and every soul, that you'd save each and every one that's lost. God, that you would touch the heart of the backslider for each and each, uh, each one that finds himself that way, and I pray that each one, uh, God would would get right with. You and Lord, I pray, dear Lord, for those that are saved and trying to live right and have other needs. Lord, I pray, dear God, that you would minister to each and every one, encourage your people, strengthen your uh, Lord, your church today. And Lord, I pray, dear God, that when we leave this place, God, that we would have seen you do the miraculous, you do everything that takes place. And Lord, I pray when we leave, we will say that it has been good to be in the presence of the Lord. It has been and good to be in the house of the Lord. And God, that we know that you have met with your people. And Lord God, I pray that each and every one of us when we leave will be able to say that we have minded the Lord and we've been obedient to what you have for us tonight. Lord, may you grow us into the image of Christ and do that which only you can do. And Father, we'll thank you, Lord, for what you do in the name that is above every name. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray and ask all of these things amen and amen. Over the last four Wednesday nights that we've been here in this chapter we have been spending some time around the cross at Calvary. We have in the previous days leading up to Easter wanted to be around the cross because the closer we get to the cross the more we realize what the death of Jesus does for us and it also reminds us that Jesus had and his death uh, was headed for a resurrection. Amen. And uh, that he died for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. And so uh, we have tried to take this time to uh, spend around the cross of Calvary. And by the way, I'll say this: it'll never hurt a Christian to spend, time, spend more time uh, around these crucifixion passages. Amen. Uh, to read and to see and to study uh, what the Lord Jesus Christ did for us uh, when he died for us in our place as he became uh, sin for us. Amen. And he in that moment paid the price of sin so that we could be saved. And so we've spent spent four weeks, this being the fourth, uh, here in Matthew chapter number 27 and in some comparative chapters that go right along with this crucifixion story. But as we've done so, we've not necessarily uh, tried to uh, do, if you will, a chronology of the the crucifixion story. We haven't taken four Gospels and put them in order. We haven't done that. We haven't tried to uh, just take Matthew or just take Mark or Luke or John and tried to expositionally preach verse by verse through the various uh, crucifixion stories. But what we have tried to do is we have tried to focus on one central idea idea that we see throughout the Christmas uh, the Christmas story the crucifixion story and uh, we've tried to focus on the irony that we see at Calvary in other words things that are being said that looks like it should be one way but in actuality it is the exact opposite and so we've been talking about irony at Calvary in the first message we saw the irony at Calvary in the Lord's position that they were mocking him as the king of Israel and when he was in fact the king of Israel and more than all of that he was the king of kings and the Lord of Lords and by the way he still is amen we saw the irony in his position but then in the second message we saw the irony in his power and that is that they uh, came to him and they uh, were talking about him and they were handling him and dealing with him in such a way where they were acting like he was powerless and that they had all the power when in actuality the one they were handling was the one that was the all powerful God of this world. So we see irony in his position. We saw the irony in his power. Then last Wednesday night in the third message in this series we saw irony at Calvary in his purity. That The one that they over and over again was charging as an evildoer. They were placing him on a cross with the religious charges of blasphemy against God and with the secular charges of being uh, rebellious and stirring up the people and being uh, an insurrectionist. They charged him as being a criminal. He had had company uh, with criminals, thieves on either side. He was called a malefactor, which means one that has committed a crime that is worthy of a public execution. All of those things we see in the the, uh, story of the crucifixion, but the irony is, is the one that they are charging as an evildoer is the sinless son of God who cannot in actuality be charged with any wrongdoing. And so we've seen irony in his position, irony in his power, irony in his purity but tonight in this last message I want us to look at the irony at Calvary in his pardon. Look with me at Matthew chapter number 27 again, and in verse number 40 in particular, verse number 39 says, and they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads, and I'll say something about that in just a moment, but look at verse number 40, the Bible says, and saying, those that passed by reviled him, those that were wagging their heads, here's what they say as they do those things. Verse 40 says, and they said to Jesus, thou that destroyed the temple, and buildest it in three days, notice these words, save thyself, if thou be the Son of God come down from the cross. Verse 41, likewise also the chief priests mocking him with the scribes and elders said, notice what they said, verse 42, he saved others, himself he cannot save if he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. And then in verse number 43, he said he trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. In verse number 40, the statement save thyself is used. In verse number 42, the word saved others is used. And again, the word saved is used in verse 42. Between verse 4040 and verse number 42, the word save is used three different times in this passage. And I believe as we will look tonight, we do see some irony that takes place in this statement. And if you'll let me tonight, I want to unpack some of that and then we'll go home. Notice with me, number one, we see as we consider this particular irony, we see the statements rendered here. Notice we see between verse 35 and verse 44, there are several statements that are being given, that are being rendered. At by these enemies of the Lord. Notice with me as we consider these statements that are being rendered. Notice with me as we see number one when they are saying these statements. Notice what is taking place in this scene when they are making these statements. I would submit to you that all of us would agree that by this time Jesus has already, and we've seen it in the last several messages as well, compiling those messages to make this uh, statement tonight. We've seen Jesus has already already lived a sinless life and has been sinless throughout a three and a half year earthly ministry. We understand that. We understand that by this time Jesus has needlessly been arrested and he has been charged falsely. We understand that Jesus has been condemned to death without any evidence, without any reliable witnesses, and with a judge that would be uh, in the person of Pilate who was judging him and was casting uh, The giving the authority uh, to put him to death when the judge himself uh, didn't and did not believe he was guilty, but had in fact over and over again had stated that he believed him to be innocent. When we come to the scene here, we understand that Jesus has been nailed to a cross without ever fighting back, and when it was completely unnecessary for them to do so. You see, as I've stated before, I'll say this adding to a statement that I previously made that the only, the ones that were crucified with nails were the ones that were seen as the most heinous, the one that would try to pull themselves off of a cross, the one that would fight every step of the way they would use nails. But for most folks that were crucified, their hands would simply be tied to the cross. Because as I've stated before, it wasn't the nails that killed them, but the position of their arms and the position in the air that would cause them to suffocate to death. It was unnecessary for a very peaceful Jesus to have been nailed in terms of physically speaking. Now, if you understand Old Testament prophecy, you understand why in the plan of God it was necessary, but it did not fit Roman protocol, yet they went against it. They crucified him as a violent offender, even though he was not. We see Jesus at this moment, He's hanging on a cross having refused, according to the Scriptures, having refused vinegar that was mingled with gall. And the reason why they offered vinegar mingled with gall to those that were being crucified is because it would give a numbing effect, if you will, and it would put them in a state of unconsciousness. It would allow them to be on the cross and die sooner so that the soldiers would not have to to wait around and would not have to, would not have to linger. This they could kill their victims and get on with their day. But here we find that Jesus has refused the vinegar mingled with God for many reasons. But for one, I would submit to you tonight was because, we, uh, because Jesus was not interested in losing consciousness that when we come to this passage, He is fully awake and fully aware of everything that is going on around Him. According to verse number 35 of our chapter, He knows that they are gambling for His clothes yep. at the foot of the cross. ¿Qué? <laughs> when it comes to verse number 36 he knows that there he knows that there is a crowd that is watching him he knows that there's a crowd that is staring at him that's literally what the word uh, the word watched there in verse 36 implies it literally means that they did not take their eyes off of him that they are looking they are inspecting they are without almost without blinking watching what is taking place and they are taking it all in. He knows that is taking place. He feels the stairs upon what the Bible says is his naked body stripped of his clothes and put on a tree in open shame. He is fully aware of the mockery that they are directing at him. And as you study these verses, one thing is abundantly clear that Jesus is being mocked at every turn. He is being mocked at every angle. Every chance they get, they are mocking the Son of God. Notice we see in verse number 37, we see that they place above him a mocking sign. Verse 37 says, and they set up over his head his accusation written, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. They placed this sign above his head and the Gospel of John even mentions this uh, that the Jews wanted this sign there uh, but they did not want this sign to read as it does here in the passage. John 19 and verse number 19 says this the Bible said and Pilate wrote a title. This sign board above his head is written in Pilate's own hand. Isn't that interesting? The Bible said and Pilate wrote a title and put it on, his, on the cross. And the writing was Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Verse 20 goes on to say this title then read many of the Jews for the the place where Jesus was crucified was nigh to the city and it was written in Hebrew and Greek and Latin. Then said the chief priests of the Jews to Pilate write not the king of the Jews but that he said I am the king of the Jews. And I love what Pilate says in verse number 22. Pilate answered what I have written I have written. (laughs) In other words, they did not want to put definitively that this is the king of the Jews, but they wanted to mock him by this and simply said that he said that he was and that he is not. There's mockery in that. They wanted to mock his own words by the signboard above his head. There is a mocking sign that we see. There is a mocking sight that we see in Matthew chapter 27. And Verse number 39, notice what the Bible says, verse 38 says, and then were there two thieves crucified with him, one on the right hand and another on the left. Verse number 39, the Bible says, and they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads. When you look at the scene of Calvary, there is a sight to be seen of people walking by the cross mocking the Lord Jesus. Now, I remind you tonight who Jesus is. He is the Son of God. And mankind is walking by Him and looking at Jesus and thinking that they have a right to mock God. By the way, we live in a day today where people are still mocking the Lord. People are still walking by our churches, they're walking by our, they're walking by our gospel witness, they're walking by uh, verses of scripture, they're walking by Bibles in people's homes, they're walking by so many different things, and they walk by and they revile, and they they, they, they are angered, and they despise what is represented of the Lord in their life. The Bible Bible said, they that passed by reviled. That means that they defamed him with their words. They slandered him. They blasphemed him. They vilified him. They spoke evil of him. They spoke of him to vilify means essentially that they spoke so evil of him almost to make him a villain that he was the one in the wrong. And they, by what they're doing, is right because they are speaking negatively of an evil man, of a villain, of a wicked person. They spoke of him so negatively with their words, they reviled him. The Bible also says that they passed by shaking their head. That means to shake in a disrespectful and mocking way. It carries the idea of throwing, uh, being thrown into a commotion. Have you ever seen anybody that is so angry when they speak it just seems like they're throwing their head back and forth? That they are so enraged that they're just, they're, they're, their heads are just moving and their their word, their, their head matches the intensity of their words and the anger of their words. That is what's taking place here as Jesus is on the cross, as they look at him and as they speak of him, they are so filled with, uh, they are so filled with anger that it shows up in how their body handles the delivery of their speech. There is a mocking sight that we see. Verse number 40, we see a mocking sound. The Bible says that they didn't just revile him and wag their their heads, but verse 40 says that they had something to say as they did so. And here we see the mocking sounds of their words when they said, thou that destroyest the temple. Remember Jesus said that he had the ability, uh, he, the Bible says that Jesus told them that if, that if, if, the, if the, 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 temp, the temple was destroyed, he could raise it in three days. They're mocking him by, by, in terms of a physical temple when your Bible and mine says Jesus was not talking about Herod's temple. That's right. He was speaking of his own body. When he said destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days, he was not talking about the temple of the Jews. He was talking about his own body. And that is what we celebrated on Sunday. The fact that here in just a moment they would destroy the temple of his body but by his own power, three days later he would walk out of a grave victorious over death, hell, and the grave. Here we see the Bible said, thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days. They're giving him that title to mock him. Oh, it's it's another word saying, oh, the one that says you can do this great thing, let me see you do something really great. He said, save thyself. There's a mocking sign, verse 37, a mocking sight, verse 39, a mocking sound, verse 40. But in verse 40 through 43, I see a mocking supposition. Notice he says in verse 40, they said, thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days. Here's the supposition, save thyself. That is what they suppose that He does. Save thyself if thou be the Son of God. Come down from the cross. You've claimed to be the Son of God. If you really are, prove that you are who you say that you are. I don't know about you But as I I even try to preach what they're saying, it crawls all over me to understand that they are looking at Jesus and they are speaking this to Jesus as he is hanging on a cross, dying for their sins, the sins that they are committing even in that moment he is presently dying for and man, he's allowing mankind to mock him in that way these these suppositions and then when you read verse 40 through 43 it is over and over again them just simply saying if you'll save yourself you'll prove to us what you say about yourself They relinquish all of their hatred and their mockery upon him when he has not done anything to deserve deserve such treatment. That is what is taking place when they make these statements. They are are angry. They They are vilifying him. They are enraged with him. And in the moment that they make this statement in this time frame, he has not done anything to deserve it. He has not defrauded them, He has not lied to them, He has not harmed them or hurt them in any way. He has not fought back with them. He has not cussed them in any way. He has not been derogatory toward them. He has not stripped them, although they have stripped him. He has not accused them falsely of anything, although they have accused him. He did not nail them to a tree, but rather... They have nailed him to a tree in Galatians chapter number 3 and verse number 13 says, cursed is the one that hangs on a tree. They've put him on a tree and for a Jewish man, Jesus is hanging there accursed. He has not done anything worthy of such treatment. You and I just from a humanly standpoint, might could understand if he was being treated this way in some kind of human or some kind of fleshly retaliation, not that it's right, not that it's okay, but we could understand if there is a self-defense involved or if there is some type of retaliation involved, it would click in our minds that maybe this could be deserved. But Jesus has done none of that. When we see, when they are saying this, we see an innocent one that is receiving absolute absolute mockery and defame upon him for no reason. We see when they are saying this. But let's also look at what they are saying by these statements. First of all, I'll submit to you that they're speaking of the past. Notice with me in verse number 42 what they said. The Bible says. that that these individuals passing by as well as the Bible says the chief priests and the scribes they echo these words, they agree together with their sentiment, but in particular these are the words of the chief priests and elders, they say, he saved others. If you notice, and I know this is not complicated, but that is a past tense statement. He saved others others. In the past He saved others. This word that we find uh, is translated saved in our Bible appears 120 times in our New Testament. It means to save in the sense of rescue. It means to preserve safe and unharmed. It means to cure, to heal, to restore, to health. It means to preserve from being lost. It means to deliver from. It means to set free from. It means to protect from. It means to cause to do well or to make whole. The chief priests and the scribes said that is what Jesus has done for others. And can I say this tonight? I think everyone in the church ought to agree. Hallelujah. He has done that for others. Amen. Before this this statement was ever made, the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ was he was in the rescuing business. He was in the preserving. Business. He was in the delivering business. He was in the healing business. He was in the curing business. He was in the business of taking broken things and broken people and making them whole again. That was their testimony of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. I submit to you tonight that these chief priests and these scribes really probably didn't even know all that they were saying when they said, He saved others. Amen. They are making this statement in an effort to get to what they're about to say. He saved others. And to mock Him with a statement, Himself He cannot save. But before they ever get there, they had to make the statement that they recognize that He has saved others. All right. <laughs> No doubt they are referring to His past ministry in which He performed miracles, raised the dead, cleansed lepers, delivered those possessed with demons. He granted freedom from those who were like the woman that was called in the act of adultery when He told her, go and sin no more. He set her free and gave her a second chance at life. No doubt they were talking about those kind of things and all of these people that I have just mentioned and so many more throughout the Gospel accounts would be people that Jesus saved. People that He delivered. They speak of His past ministry to mock Him, but in their mockery they actually admit who He is and they praise Him without even meaning to because they are of giving validation to the fact that He has genuinely and truly ministered in the lives of people and it has made a difference to the point to where it could be called rescuing them, saving them, delivering them. They definitely state here that He did in fact save others. Amen. They may never wanted to admit it before but as they try to mock Jesus, they accidentally let it slip out that they've noticed he has been saving folks all along. Amen. Amen. I don't know if that does for you what it does for me, but I'm telling you, thank God, amen, Jesus has been doing such a work that even the Pharisees had to take note of it. They aren't. These Pharisees had to say that he did, in fact, save others when their ministry wasn't saving anybody. What they were doing and what they offered in religion wasn't helping anybody. But they had to say, we may not be helping anybody, but he sure has been. And referring to the past and saying that he saved others, they are giving affirmation to the miracles, they are giving affirmation to the raising from the dead, they are giving affirmation to the cleansing of lepers, to the deliverance from demons, and everything else that Jesus did. And by giving affirmation to these things that he has done, they are by proxy saying that he is very well qualified of being the one that they don't want to recognize Him as. Go take your Bible with me real quickly to the book of Isaiah chapter number 35. Isaiah 35. They do not want to recognize Him as their Messiah, but when they said He saved others, they are saying that He's qualified to be the Messiah. Isaiah 35, look at verse number five. These words are speaking of the Messiah. This is a prophecy concerning the Messiah in your Old Testament. The Bible said, then the eyes of the blind shall be open. Did Jesus not do that? Yes, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Did Jesus not do that? Okay. Verse six, then shall the lame man leap as the heart or as the deer and the tongue of the dumb sing. For in the wilderness shall waters break out and streams in the desert. One of the most prominent prophecies of Messiah in the prophecy in the prophecy of Isaiah is the fact that he would be a man that would be coming and he would be giving sight to the blind and opening deaf ears and performing miracles. And hereby by the fact when they said he saved others, no doubt referring to his ministry and what he did, the very thing that they don't want to admit that he is is exactly what they said he's qualified of being. The Messiah. You look at Matthew chapter nine verse five, Matthew chapter eleven verse four, five, and six, Luke chapter number seven verse twenty through twenty-three. You will find the sovereign Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, doing exactly what those verses said that the Messiah would do: healing and doing miracles. They speak of the past, but now go back with me to Matthew twenty-seven. I want to say this, as we consider what they're saying by these statements, they speak of the past, but then can I say this? They speak of the possibility. Look at verse 42 in your Bible. Verse 42, the past, he saved others. The possibility himself, he cannot save. In other words, what they are saying here is that he cannot save himself. There is no possibility for him to save himself. Now I will say this to you tonight, logically speaking, that doesn't even make sense. Here's the reason why I say that. If I I can do something for you, if I can physically do something for you, then chances are I'm physically able to do it for myself. They they said he was able to save others, but he cannot save himself. To be honest with you, I'll admit that when it comes to most things in life, it's easier for me to do things for myself than it is to do things for others. So logically speaking, this does not make sense. However, we understand that, he, that they, uh, they are saying this as an effort to mock him, and they are not trying to be logical with what they say. Verse 41 even tells us that they were mocking him. Verse 41, likewise also the chief priests mocking him with the scribes and elders said. So the statement here, he saved others himself, he cannot save, is meant to mock and not necessarily to make sense. Can I say this? When they say this, they are not concerned with the way that things actually are, but they are only concerned with how they can make them seem to be. These words that they are stating, it's not necessarily something that they're concerned with being right or not, but they want everybody around them that hears them say that. They want that to be the narrative that they believe of the Lord Jesus. Can I say this, that that is exactly the way many are in the day in which we live. They don't concern themselves with what is actually true, but you and I know this in the world in which we live, it is those with the loudest voices that get to set the narrative. Amen. Whether it's true or not, amen, it's been said, you say anything loud enough and long enough, it'll eventually become the truth that is accepted. Here are these these chief priests. They are the leaders of the day. All they have to do is say something loud enough and say it bold enough and with seemingly enough authority and that will eventually be accepted by the truth for the masses. Now I'm not going to take time tonight to talk to you about how that truth applies in our world but you know it's true and so do I. Those with the loudest voices get to set the narrative. In verse number 44 we see this on display in the text because the Bible says after the chief priests and scribes and elders say what they say the Bible said the thieves also which were crucified with him cast the same in his teeth. In other words they start saying the same thing they pick up saying exactly what the chief priests and the elders and the scribes were saying they repeat the narrative they join in the mocking and is it not easy to join in something what somebody with a little bit more prominence than you amen has started the whole thing from the beginning amen these are thieves those are religious rulers and they jump in on the mockery amen they are accusing Jesus of not being able to, describe, to save himself but can I tell you that the Bible declares that this is false? Take your Bible with me to Luke chapter number 1. Luke chapter number 1. Luke chapter number 1. Look with me at verse number 37. Luke chapter 1 verse 37. You know the context here. The context is the birth of the Lord Jesus. Here's what the Bible says in reference to His birth and reference to the time of His birth and the miraculous things that God is doing in that time frame. The Bible says, for with God nothing shall be impossible. Jesus is not even here yet. Jesus is still in the womb of his mother, and the narrative, the glowing narrative of his life, the glowing theme of his life is this: that with God, nothing shall be impossible. Now, go with me to Matthew twenty-six. I'll probably have to conclude with these verses tonight. It's Wednesday night. I've been preaching thirty-six minutes. If I don't stop where I have a good stopping spot, I know it's going to be an hour. So. Look with me at Matthew 26, verse number 51. We've seen that the Bible declares that this is not true in the womb, Luke chapter 1, verse 37. But I'll say this, the Bible declares that this is not true, that Jesus can in fact save himself. That the the fact that he cannot is not true in his words. Look at what he says about himself, Matthew 26, 51. The Bible says, and behold, one of them which were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck a servant of the high priest who smote off his ear. Other Gospels gives us the name of this man. His name is Malchus. Verse 52 says, then said Jesus unto him, speaking about unto Peter, the one that drew the sword and cut off his ear, again identified in other Gospels, said unto him, put up again thy sword into his place. For all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword." Thinkest thou that I, uh, that I cannot now? Notice this statement. Notice these words of Jesus. Jesus is about to talk about things that somebody is supposing that he cannot do. Remember their statement was he saved others, himself he cannot save. Jesus is about to tell Peter what he can do. Look what the Bible says here. Jesus said to Peter, "Thinkest thou this?" Is verse fifty-three of Matthew twenty-six. Thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my Father, and He shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels? And have, but how then shall the Scriptures be fulfilled that thus it must be? In other words, Jesus tells Peter, Peter, I don't need you fighting for me. They have come to arrest me. I do not need you fighting for me. You do not have to draw out your sword on my behalf. If I needed to defend myself, I have the possibility, I have the ability to call legions of angels. He said 12 legions of angels to his defense. My math is not great, but, but a legion of angels is somewhere between, could be anywhere between six and 12,000 uh, angels. On the top end, 12 legions would be 144,000. Amen. And anyway, even if my math's not right, amen. That's a lot of angels. <laughs> I don't have a calculator. That's a lot of angels. That's a lot of defense. For just somebody wanting to arrest him, if Jesus could call 12 legions of angels at that moment to prevent him from being arrested, what do you think he could do if he was on a cross? Notice, go, go with me to John chapter number 18 tonight. John 18. I'm going to close here with these verses, so no need to get worried tonight. John 18, 36. Look at what Jesus tells Pilate again with his own words, proving their statement that he cannot save himself is False. We looked at this last week and made a different application. But verse 36, Jesus said, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight. That I, notice this, that I should not be delivered to the Jews, but now is my kingdom not from hence. In other words, Jesus is saying, if I needed to save myself, I can. From his own lips he lets us know that if he needed to, he he uses the word here in verse 36, he uses the word delivered. That I be not delivered to the Jews. Uh, You know, I think about the word delivered there, that he wouldn't be put into the hands of the Jews. In other words, he's saying, if I needed to save myself, I could. Turn the page to John chapter number 19. Look at verse number 10. The Bible says this again, this is Jesus' words. Verse 10 Then saith Pilate, this is Pilate speaking, says, Speakest thou not unto me? We dealt with this last week as well for a different fault. Knowest thou not that I have power to crucify thee and have power to release thee? Jesus answered, thou couldest have no power at all against me, except it were given thee from above, therefore he that delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin, in other words, Jesus is letting them know that there's not a man on if, if Pilate doesn't have if if this man that has been given authority from the by the greatest uh, political might of the world, Pilate has this dominion from the Caesar of Rome. Caesar has allowed him. And has vested power in him over this region for him uh, to be able to, to, make, uh, the, to, to make the, uh, the, to, to make the uh, rulings as he does. And so here, if Pilate does not have power over Jesus, I would imagine that nails don't. I would imagine that wood does not. Jesus from his oh from the womb lets us know that with God nothing shall be impossible and there's not going to be any nails that could hold him to a wooden cross. From the womb we see that that statement, he cannot save himself, is false. In his own words we see the statement, he cannot save himself, is false. Now go with me to John chapter number 10. We see in his witness that this statement is false. I want you to take your Bible to John chapter 10 and verse 30. I want you to lay your eyes on this this short verse of Scripture. But oh how powerful it is in our understanding of this thought. Jesus said this concerning his relationship with his Father in heaven. He said, I and my Father are one. Now I remind you that in Genesis chapter number 18 and verse number 14, In the context of Abraham and Sarah, conceiving a child in their old age and wondering before God how is it possible that a man that is 100 and a woman that is 90, how is it that they can have a child and about the Lord it is said this by by that text, Genesis 18, 14. The question is asked, is anything too hard for the Lord? That is a question to the Lord. That word Lord there is capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. It is the word Jehovah. And if you study that out, you will find out that that Jehovah in the Old Testament includes Jesus Christ of our New Testament. And so when the Bible poses the question, is anything too hard for the Lord, it could be said, is anything too hard for Jesus? And that is, a, that is a rhetorical question. Now rhetorical essentially meaning the answer is no. Right. Is anything too hard for the Lord? No. Is anything too hard for God the Son? No. Is anything too hard for God the Father? No. Why? Him and His Father are one. There's nothing too hard for God the Father, nothing too hard for God the Son. So we understand there is a scriptural witness here that we see from the Word of God. But I'll close with this statement We see that that statement, that he he saved others himself, he cannot save. It It is false in a scriptural witness, but also in what I'm calling tonight a scene witness. You think about this. You go through every miracle that Jesus ever performed. The, the, you, you think about those miracles, you think about the people that saw him perform those miracles, and you and I can know that each and every one of them would understand that all of the things that they had seen Jesus do was much more difficult than him coming down from a cross. Right. You, you, add, you, you think about John chapter number 11. Jesus in John chapter number 11, his friend Lazarus has died, has been four days dead. Jesus walks up to the tomb. After four days, Lazarus has already began to decay. He stands out at the tomb and he says, Lazarus, come forth. Think about this. This is what Jesus can do. In his word, Lazarus, come forth. Jesus calls a man dead to be able to hear the words of the living Son of God. And not just hear them, but respond to them. And life entered his body again. And he still wrapped up in grave clothes. Made his way out of a tomb. And he was alive and well and lived again to have another meal with Jesus in the next chapter in John chapter number 11. If Jesus can call out, Lazarus come forth, I'd imagine he could come down from a cross. Luke chapter number 22. Verse number fifty and fifty-one, all four Gospels mention this event, but only Luke, the physician, physician mentions the mentions the healing that, take, took, that took place. I read just a moment ago about that servant that Jesus uh, that 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 that, uh, that Jesus was being arrested, and Peter took his sword and cut off uh, the servant of the high priest Malchus's ear. And Luke chapter number twenty-four tells us that Jesus touched him and healed him. One thing that you'll find out when you study the accounts, the four gospel accounts, and then Luke that mentions, is the only one that mentions that the man that had his ear cut off didn't stay that way. Yeah, right. But his ear was healed. Most people, when they talk about this event, would would say that Jesus picked up his ear. All the movies show this. Jesus picked up his ear, put it on his head, and attached it again. But you'll never find in your Bible where Jesus picked up the ear. The Bible just said that He healed him. I believe with all of my heart that Peter cut off that ear, that ear fell to the ground, and I believe that Jesus put His hand on the guy's head and grew a brand new ear. Just said He healed him. Healed the ear. Never said He picked it up and reattached the thing the Bible does tell us about times where Jesus picked up and performed miracles the Bible tells us about Jesus bending over and picking up uh, picking up uh, mud and clay from the ground and putting it on a man's eyes we understand when the Bible mentions that in healing that it mentions that to us but it doesn't mention us in Luke concerning Malchus' ear If Jesus can touch a man that has had his ears severed and can touch his head and grow a brand new ear from nothing, he can come down from a cross. They said, speaking of the past, he saved others. And what a wonderful thing that is, that even that that Jesus' ministry was so compelling that even his enemies had to admit that God was at work and Jesus was seeing folks delivered and helped and blessed in ways they could never do. But at the same time, that statement where they mentioned the possibility and said they said it is impossible. He saved others himself. He cannot save. They said that it's impossible, but the Word of God and the work of the Lord Jesus is the Lord Jesus' ministry prove they were wrong. He could save others. He could do anything that he wanted to do. Next week, next Wednesday night, Lord willing, what we will do is we will answer the question, if he can, then why didn't he? If he could, why did he choose not to? And we'll look at that this coming Wednesday night. Every head bowed, every eye closed, I'm done. Thank you for making us part of your day. We would love to hear from you. Please find us on Facebook or at our website, bbclexington.com.